0: Hey there, everybody! It's that time again from KQED Public Radio. This is Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer,
3: and I'm Marisa Lagos. And today on the Breakdown, she's one of the most powerful women in Sacramento, whose name you might not even know yet. Anna Leary, self-described policy wonk, a veteran of Democratic politics, a friend of Bill and Hillary.
0: She worked in the Clinton White House and Hillary Clinton's campaign for president. Now she is chief of staff to Governor Gavin Newsom. Marisa, we have so many things we want to I talk to her about. I know. What are we going to talk about? We There's have a too long much. list of things, but. We're going to begin, as we do, uh, by talking to about- to, to each other. To each other. ourselves. That's right. Uh, actually, Anne is, is here, uh, <laughs> so she'll be witness to all this, but- uh, Big decision this week in Sacramento, um, really, uh, the national news, uh, Governor Gavin Newsom deciding to suspend the death penalty to uh, give reprieve to 737 inmates on death row. Huge news.
3: Huge. Um, And I guess if you look back, the breadcrumbs were sort of there. He had been starting to talk about this more. But I think it came as a really big surprise um, here. And, yeah, we both know it's national news because we both had to get up in the middle of the night on different (laughs) days and talk about it. Um, But, you know, so he came out. Flanked by really like a who's who of Democratic lawmakers and constitutional officers. Um, in the rotunda,
0: and, or just off the rotunda. Right the, like, outside State the Capitol. pro tem's
3: office. And um, made really sort of deeply personal comments about kind of what brought him to this decision, um, including a case that both of his grandfather and his father had worked on, a, a wrongful conviction case with a mob alleged hitman who was not.
0: Yeah. And, you know, it's always when these, like I remember you covered and I was in the city when he was mayor and he uh, decided to allow same-sex couples to get marriage licenses in San Francisco. And there's always the, the, the initial reaction of the cynical media is, oh, he's doing this, you know oh in, speak for yourself in that gotcha. case it was to consolidate his le- his support on the left right? right because he had barely won just a few months earlier and i think you know there was a fair amount of skepticism about this as well not to mention some anger we'll get into that yeah. as well but you know i think you know you had a chance to talk to him this week uh, after the announcement and it was pretty clear i think that this was something that was pretty uh, difficult for him yeah. to do and also pretty heartfelt
3: yeah i mean he talked you know to folks on all sides of this issue ahead of time including victims families who both support and oppose the death penalty. Um, And I asked him specifically about that conversation because during that news conference, he said that uh, one family in particular told him that it was his job to eradicate evil. And so I asked him kind of about what those conversations were like and what he told those families.
0: Yeah, I I remember specifically that engagement that I said, I I cannot imagine being in your position and I'm, I'm not going to for a second question it. And I completely respect your point of view, and I am not here to even debate uh, that point of view. I'm tasked with a different question. The question be put on me is, how do I process the execution of 737 people, one person every day for two years, one person every week for 14 years?
3: And I thought that framing was really interesting, you know, and this idea of, you know, and obviously he probably would not preside over the execution well, of Well, yeah, I was going to
0: say that was a little it's overly ma- dramatic. But because it's the he,
3: magnitude of it, right?
0: Right. I mean, certainly if you take one life, it's got to be very difficult to preside <sighs> yeah. over that. But that, there's 25 people, not 737, who have exhausted their legal appeals. But, you know, the point's yeah. well taken. But it was a little – I thought that was, you know, a little dramatic.
3: <laughs> a little dramatic. Well, I thought it was interesting – to hear him talk about sort of the difference between it as a theoretical sort of philosophical discussion. And when what he said was, you know, I came into uh, I got I got elected, we started transitioning and I I asked my legal team to brief me on this. And when they came back, you know, he said he thought maybe in three or, you know, the end of his first term that he might have be having to make these calls about about whether to oversee an execution and sign off on it and they said well as early as April those protocols might be yeah, ready.
0: Yeah, the lethal injection protocol was very close to being approved and you know we it's no secret his predecessor Jerry Brown very much against the death penalty. I'm sure he would not have wanted to preside uh, over an execution. Either would have been interesting. It is interesting that he didn't do what Governor Newsom did. You know, he could have given a reprieve and he did he chose not to do that. Maybe he knew it wasn't really his it wasn't a decision he had to make.
3: Right. I mean, I think in some ways <laughs> He kind of ran out the clock on that. He right? Oh, and, absolutely. And, and I think there's been accusations that he dragged his feet. But
0: well, also, let's not forget his first time as governor, the death right. penalty loomed large as well. And so that. maybe he didn't want to have a bookend there.
3: Yeah. But I also think that this speaks to the different styles of these two men. Um, again, you know how sort of personally Newsom talked about this, not just about that that case that his father took on, but um, about going to death row and seeing somebody he knew from high school there about having foster uh, siblings that his mom had taken in who were not sentenced to death, but had, you know, had experienced the criminal justice system as men of color. Um, Bias. And, yeah. And and I think the issue of innocence, you know, and I think we should say there's a lot of there's a lot of people who are really mad right now about this. And well, yeah, you know. but
0: there are. And that's totally understandable. But at the same time, you know, there's this sense or this illusion, really, that the the capital punishment brings closure to families. Or that it's victims. been
3: working. We haven't had an execution in thirteen well, years. Well, right. And they
0: have these families have to continually stay engaged with the legal system during the appeals process. Uh, you know, the as they say, the leading cause of death on death row is old age. Right. People are dying because they're, you know, they're getting old, they're getting sick. Occasionally there's been a murder, you know, right. from by another prisoner. But so I think it's it's it is it, it is sort of a false promise. I certainly understand, you know, why someone would want to see the person who killed their son or their daughter or whoever put to death, you know, but when is that really going to happen?
3: I mean, yeah. And I think that that is really the, the ultimate point. Is none of us you cannot tell somebody how to grieve, and everybody is going to have a, a different point of view. I, I, I will say, and I know you've watched this issue for a long time, and we've both covered a lot of criminal justice things. I think it's interesting that the framing of victims is shifting, and that you're hearing more from the governor yesterday, from you know people on our air talking about the fact that there was a very vocal group of mostly middle class, um, you know white parents who really drove a lot of the discussions around three strikes and some of those tough on crime laws. And there are a lot of people, especially of color, who I think were both have, you know, experienced both sides of the criminal justice system who are coming out, not just in this issue, but in some of the broader reforms and saying, hey, you know, we want to see it at the table, too. And, um, you know, I think The next question, obviously, does become political. Does this go before voters in 2020 and what happens?
0: Exactly. Well, we want to talk about that and much more with our guests. So we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, our conversation with Governor Newsom's Chief of Staff, Ann O'Leary. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio.
1: Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hi there. I'm Randa Adilfattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED
3: produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today.
2: You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org/podcast. That's donate.kqed.org/podcast.
3: Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos, along as always with Scott Schaefer. And today we're delighted to have with us a woman whose fingerprints are all over those policies and proposals coming out of Sacramento, especially ones affecting children. Anne O'Leary is Governor Gavin Newsom's chief of staff. Welcome to the Breakdown. Thank you so much. It's a delight to be here.
0: Thanks for coming in.
3: So your title is chief of staff. um, What does that mean? What, What do you do all day? You know, it's a combination of
2: dealing with the major policy issues of the day. So that's both things that are coming at you. So wildfires, crisis management, what's happening with our utilities, uh, but also the the positive agenda going forward. How do we make sure that we're driving that? In order to do that, you have to have an amazing team. I feel like I'm the team captain and the team of, uh, you know, public policy is a team sport. So I have, uh, you know, really
3: managed just a terrific group of people to make all that happen. And is a day like, Eighteen hours long usually.
2: Uh, it is often very long. <laughs> yeah, it starts really, really. Worked
0: for a number of politicians: yeah. uh, Bill Clinton, Hillary Clinton. How does this governor? How does Gavin Newsom compare in terms of his style? Do you think? Okay.
2: You know, he's a very um, easy person to be around. He's really smart. He reads all the time. He's thinking all the time. Uh, he's always uh, active, involved, and he's incredibly bold. I mean, we, we saw it here in San Francisco with same-sex marriage, but everything he does is how can we do as much good as fast as possible, but also with people coming with us. You know, he talked about the African pro- proverb in his inaugural speech, which is, you know, you if you want to go far, you'd go together. And if you want to go fast, you go alone. And or maybe
3: is it different than other politicians you've worked for? Does it feel different? You know, I mean, They must all feel different. In some they way.
2: all feel different. You know, I worked for Hillary Clinton for nearly 20 years wow. on and off. And so I could tell you what she was going to say before you said it. <laughs> she said it. I knew her so well. Uh, and she was bold in her own ways, but, you know, from a different time in a different era in some ways. And so I think, you know, that's it's different. Yeah. You know,
0: my impression of Gavin Newsom is that he's a lot more like Bill Clinton than like Hillary, uh, <laughs> you know, in the sense that uh, he's very spontaneous. Uh, my hunch is that he comes into the office in the morning and you're not quite sure what he's going to want to do and he has a lively a big set of interests i would say
2: He has a big set of interests. He's really ambitious about everything he wants to get done, but he has real ideas about how to do it. So one of the things that I'll just give you an example that he does is we'll, I'll be having a staff meeting, we'll be planning out and he'll just walk in unannounced and sit down and say, no, 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 let's think about doing it this way. I want to be, you know, even more, do that sooner, do that faster, do that differently. I want to, you know, make sure I have people standing with me in this way. So he has a lot of opinions about how to get it done.
3: All right. I want to move on to you and your life but because this is a good transition. I'm just curious. Like, I feel like he's had a pretty great reception in Sacramento. But I do think the one thing I hear from a lot of people up there is he wants to do so much. Like, is there is there a set of priorities? What what can you actually get done? I mean, what would you say are the really sort of core things? Understanding you have to walk and chew gum in this job, you know, but is he trying to do too much?
2: I don't think he's trying to do too much, but I do think we have to be smart about how we prioritize and get things done. There's three things he's trying to do. One is that he's trying to address the cost crisis in California. You know, we know that about 60% of young people say they literally cannot afford to live in California. 60%. That's a lot. If we don't deal with the housing, health care, transportation, the cost issues, uh, then we, we're, we're going to lose people. The second big bucket is he really has this ambition of justice for all. And you saw that yesterday with the death penalty announcement. You see, and his passion for safe drinking water. And then the third thing is he's very focused on effective government. How do we make sure that when we look at climate change and wildfires that we have working utilities? That was a lot, though. I'm
0: really surprised. (laughs) That was a lot, but I
2: got it it down. I'm so surprised
0: that none of the children's issues were in that list because that's important to you, I know, as you worked for Hillary Clinton, and he's talked a lot about child care, parental leave, uh, early childhood education. I mean, I'm surprised that it's not in the top three. Well, you
2: know, I think I probably should have expanded the first one. We we talk about the cost crisis, but we also talk about it in terms of affordability and opportunity. And so there's a whole agenda regarding opportunity from cradle to career, and we are very focused on that. Um, You know, I think part of it is that there's such great people we have working for us who are doing that every day. So part of it is how do you use his time versus
3: how do we use our our team's time? So Mm -hmm. we're trying to do both of those things well. All right. Well, let's talk a little bit about you and your life. You grew up in Maine. I did. Your dad was um, head of the AFL-CIO there and sounds like a kind of larger-than-life figure. He was. A great Irishman who told a great
2: story and a great joke. Every room he walked into, he had people laughing. Uh, but he was also just a really inspirational person. Uh, you know, walked picket lines with him when I was growing up uh, at a time when a lot was changing in Maine. So I learned a lot from him. And so your
0: mom, I think, was a social worker? My maybe? mom
2: was a social worker. So they really were, you know, kind of the spirit of public service and helping people and
3: really had it in their core being and uh, pass that on to me. Was politics, I mean, it sounds like like he brought you into at least union politics. Was politics something you thought you might go into? I had, Yeah, I had an, an itch for it early on. Really? Um, it, you know, in part, what I saw
2: when I was in high school, there were major strikes in the paper mills in Maine, and they didn't end well. In fact, actually, the paper mills um, permanently replaced the strikers. So all the union members lost their jobs. Oh, wow. And I saw Uh, communities devastated. I saw people lose their jobs. I saw young people, their parents literally not having any income. And it made a real impact on me. But I also, you know, grew up with a sister who had, you know, pretty serious mental health issues. And seeing the fact that she didn't get great service uh, in our small town, those things combined led me to really want to do more.
0: And you were uh, instrumental in sort of putting the opioid crisis on the agenda. Was that, did that have anything to do with your, you know, your upbringing in terms of what you saw and what your dad talked about, your mom talked about?
2: You mean in the in the presidential campaign? Yeah, Hillary? I, mean, I know it's yeah. a long,
0: it's yeah. into the future, but I just wonder because I know up in that part of the U.S. Yeah, there so, are a I lot mean, of problems it's, with that.
2: It's really we uh, during the Hillary campaign, I ended up doing roundtables all over New Hampshire on the opioid crisis, and you know it, it's a, a drug that really knows no income bounds, uh, knows no um, geographic bounds, but it does end up in a lot of rural towns, and mm-hmm. it's devastating. Uh, it is something that uh, my family's experienced with my sister's uh, problems. It's something that many families have experienced. And I so, think
3: you'd be hard-pressed to find someone in America right now who doesn't know somebody who yeah. has struggled with this. And know? so it's
2: something that I think, you know, it's interesting because I think uh, per- particularly in urban areas, we are obviously sitting here in San Francisco, you don't see it and feel it as much, but you get into the rural areas in California, it's just the same as it is in New Hampshire.
3: So did you come out to California first for school? Was that kind of the first draw? Uh,
2: no. Uh, my ex-husband's from here, so okay. we uh, came out uh, together after we got married. And, uh, you met him back east? I met him back east in Washington, Washington. Uh, He grew up in Sacramento, and so we uh, came out here when he joined the faculty at UC Berkeley. And was that what was that transition like? Because had you been in D.C. for a bit? I'd been in D.C. for about 10 years, but I'd actually come out here before I met him. I came out here on my own and I went to Stanford. I um, got a master's in education policy. I'd been working in the White House, but at night I'd been volunteering uh, for a program in D.C. that helped young people in in the high schools who needed tutoring. And I was very inspired by some of the inequality issues that I saw in D.C. So I came out here to Stanford, got a degree in education policy. So I'd been familiar with the area. Uh, But it's really different than the East Coast out here. I've been here for 16 years now and, uh, I uh, and Now I'm a Californian. I've got California children, and I love it. So you have what? two kids? Two kids, yeah. And
0: they're, you said that earlier Sixth we were talking. Sixth grade and third grade, yeah. And the same birthday.
2: And the same birthday tomorrow. Happy birthday to my
3: children. Good luck this weekend <laughs> <Thank> <laughs> Wait, you. so let's go back, though, because you you said you were in the White House. So how did that, like, how did you kind of enter the political world? This was after undergrad? Is that? I
2: did. So I went to undergrad in Massachusetts at Mount Holyoke College, a women's college. And then I, um, I got an opportunity to intern for um, Senator George Mitchell from Maine, who was the Senate Majority Leader at the time? My dad helped me um, get that internship, uh, and then I um, didn't. Ha- I, I didn't have any money, and so I couldn't really afford to have an unpaid internship. So after college, I actually started uh, doing something. That was before the internet, so I volunteered at the White House, and I went in at four a.m. and I did newspaper clippings uh, <laughs> and handed them out to the West Wing uh, folks. And what <laughs> years
0: did you do that? I'm just curious. That was
2: 19. Um, 19- I graduated from college in 1993 and started volunteering that year. Vol- so so. Vol- Volunteering? So I was volunteering in the White House because I, the internships, I couldn't afford to work during during the day I had to work. Oh, I see. And so I would so- um, go from 4 a.m. until about 7 a.m. with the newspaper clippings, and then I'd go to my job. And about a year later, they asked me if I wanted to apply for a paid job at the White House, and I got to do that. So— Sorry, well, I was just going to say, what's
0: it like clipping all those like bad articles about your <laughs> boss, and they hear here's what they're saying about you? Yeah,
2: you know, it's so fascinating because it was such a different time, and I think sometimes you know I, I've taught law school in the past, and people are so surprised that you know you, that we grew up in a time when there was no internet, even in the White House. Uh, but we used to go and we'd get newspapers from all over the country, and we'd look at them all, and you had to clip the ma- major news articles, and then everything about the president. Um, and sometimes there were some pretty bad days. Uh, although it was 1993, so the early days were good. Um Ben. So Good,
0: 96, seven, eight. Yeah,
2: when I came back after I got my master's in education policy, I came back to the White House, and those were darker days. I mean, it was definitely the second term was hard and lots of um, um, you know raw emotion in the country about what the president was doing and what we were trying to how, do.
0: How did you and other women on the staff during that era talk among yourselves about what was happening?
2: You know, it's so interesting because I've obviously reflected on it a lot, especially in in recent years. And I can't, I just have to say it was such a different era. And it was also a time in which we felt so politically under attack and mm-hmm. felt obviously the impeachment was going on, impeachment hearings were going on. One of my dear friends, a woman named Cheryl Mills, was the attorney who defended the president on the floor of the Senate. And, and she and I used to go running together every morning. And um, it was really... In some sense, I I have to embarrass to admit that I just um, saw it as a huge political attack on him. And I didn't really process the issues of the power dynamic, the sexual issues, until really recently when I thought, you know, my gosh, did I really miss this? Well, you
3: still see that. I mean, I think it's not uncommon to close ranks in politics. You know, look at the Kavanaugh hearings. I think that... You know, people on either side of that sort of, like, retreated to their, you know, yeah. corners and didn't, yeah.
0: Uh, if, uh, if you're just joining us, uh, we're, you're listening to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer with Marisa Lagos. Our guest is Anne O'Leary. She's uh, Chief of Staff to Governor Gavin Newsom. You know, you said that you hadn't processed that stuff until uh, recently. And I'm wondering, did, was that before or after the presidential campaign with Hillary Clinton? Because that really was an issue during that time. Yeah. For a lot of women, right?
2: Right. Well, I mean, you know, for Hillary, you know, she's been she's such a leader for women. You look at all the women who are running for president, and the fact of the matter is that there's multiple women running for president. It's such an extraordinary um, time in our history. You know, I was so proud of her. I was so proud of the work I did for her. I was so proud of the advocacy she did on gender equity, and I got the chance to run her transition. You know, hoping that she would be the first woman president, and it was such a a time that I, I I was so proud that. Certainly those issues came up, but it was more in the process of what could we do to really help, um, you know, right some of the wrongs of the past in terms
3: of the Me Too movie. Well, let's talk about that. So you were co-chairing her transition team. And my understanding is, I mean, like the rest of the country, you guys thought she had a pretty good shot of winning. Yeah, there there was no plan B. (laughs) Yeah. So what was, I mean, how far down the sort of road had you guys started planning and...
0: Yeah. And there was there was talk that Joe Biden was going to be the secretary of state. I mean, had it gotten that far.
3: Yeah. So we had, we,
2: you know, under the there's a presidential transaction transition act. So actually both sides, both Trump and we were in the same building, different floors, planning the transition three months in advance. We had about 20, 25 people on staff and I was leading it up with a co-director. And we had definitely, you know, uh, had a, a binder filled with our cabinet picks and we, you know, we had delivered it to her to, you know, evaluate and think about with us for the next uh, next day. Uh, we had all of our policy plans that we were translating from policies into into implementation. So, it was it was uh, nothing short of devastation when we lost that night.
3: Did you? So if you guys were in the same building, was like Chris Christie upstairs or downstairs yeah, so, working? Um,
2: yeah, so Chris Christie uh, was the chair and then there was a his uh, guy named Rich Baggard was his uh, executive director. Were they uh,
3: working? Like, did they, you feel yeah, like you so were I worked I worked with them. of them?
2: Um, you know, it's interesting because the way that the Presidential Transition Act works is that Obama's chief of staff would call us in regularly for meetings to make sure that giving briefings to both sides is part of the, um, you know, really responsibility of the government to make sure there's a smooth transition. So I got to know, you know, his team. But remember, Trump Fired that team days after the and threw all that work election. in the garbage, right? And threw all that which Chris really, work, which is really, you know, it is a, you know, for whatever you think of Trump, I think that was definitely one of the worst mistakes for effective governing. So that was very disheartening. So
0: where were you on election night?
2: So I had struggled with whether I should just stay at the office to be honest and keep working because we were going to go from, you know, 20 people to about a thousand employees the next day. Uh, but John Podesta, who is the chair of the campaign, said, come up we're, you're going to be, you know, when she becomes president, you're going to be one of the first people to brief her. You need to brief her on the transition. And plus, Anne, you've been doing this for 20 years. Like, come, come celebrate. <laughs> yeah. So I went up and I was there that night. I had um, gone the early in the evening to be with some of our big supporters. It was a very like exciting and heady time. And then I went over to the convention. Center, and things started looking strange. My friend Cheryl Mills was actually in with Hillary, and so I was calling her and trying to find out what was going on, and it just started looking really bad. Uh, John Podesta said, if it looks like we're going to tie, if there's a Bush v. Gore situation, you need to go back to D.C. and open the office. So I decided to actually get on a train uh, to go back to D.C. in case we needed to open up the transition office. So I got to Penn Station at 3 a.m. By the time I got there, they had just called. So you were all by yourself. You know, it was interesting. um, A bunch of us ended up there, so near a tandem who's the head of the Center for American Progress. A bunch of us headed up on that train, which was a pretty sad train to back to D.C. Wow. But
3: So, okay, so now you're in Sacramento and you're in this position that's like quasi-politics and policy, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like you've really, I mean, thinking about the last three months of a campaign that you were like deep in the policy, not on the political side. How has that transition been? Are you, do you like the politics?
2: You know, I've been in politics. In pol- I've, I've been at the intersection of politics, policy, and law for pretty much my whole career. So, you know, I've been in government. I've been on the campaign. I worked as a senior policy advisor on the campaign. So uh, that part is not new at all. I feel like it's pretty natural in terms of the work that I'm doing. What is new is that I've never worked at state government. Although yeah. I've lived in California for some time, I really am new to Sacramento. So the part that I hadn't anticipated is just all the relationships, meeting people, making sure you get to know people, because part of politics is, you know, built on relationships. Yeah. So I've got a lot of uh, work to do there. So are you
3: ready to like twist some arms in the legislature for that clean water deal or whatever? <laughs> I
2: don't know about twisting arms. Right <laughs> now I'm just trying to meet people and uh, really, you know, it's an exciting time. It's a great legislature legislature, and people really want to get work done.
0: So we talked at the top of the show about the, the death penalty and um, tell us about the last week or so with the governor. Yeah, and like the, how and
3: did he tell you about that?
2: How and...
0: did you tell you and also meetings with families
2: yeah, so you know he he's really been interested in this. He started thinking about it as he was getting close to the election. Um, before I joined, I joined uh, him just after the election, and uh, you know it's been deep in his him for some time. And he's been anxious about the fact that we know that he would have to eventually maybe sign a you know the warrant for a, a death to happen in, in California. So we started talking about it during the transition. But in the last week, as he realized that this uh, court deadline was a- approaching with regard to the lethal injection protocol, that that we would have to decide what we're going to file in court, and he didn't feel comfortable filing on behalf of lethal injection. And so we really started talking to him about all of the legal options over, you know, the last month and um, came to where we did. Uh, But the last couple of days were incredibly emotional, probably more so than I thought. We met um, civil rights leaders who have—faith leaders who really have been working on this for so many years you know, crying with tears in their eyes, thanking us. But we also met with victims' families, and it was, you know, gut-wrenching. I, You know, it's just uh, the emotion was so raw and so hard. So I think it was not something he took lightly, but it was also not something any of us took lightly.
3: Were you nervous at all when he said, this is the path I want to take, just about, you know, the ramifications and how big of a decision that is?
2: I know I wasn't nervous at all. I, I mean, the good thing is that I felt like we had such moral clarity and certainty about what he was doing uh, that I wasn't nervous about that at all. I was wanting to make sure that we did it, you know, legally, the most legally sound way to do it, that we communicated it right, that we met with people who wanted to meet with us, that we reached out to law enforcement and families and civil rights leaders and faith leaders. So I wanted to get all that right. And I was nervous that we wouldn't have enough time to get all that right. But I wasn't nervous about what we did.
0: You know, I can imagine if you after you pass big legislation that you're excited about, you go celebrate. And this is so somber, it's such a somber issue. How did you mark it, you know, when it was done?
2: You know, one of the things that was so amazing is we have an incredible team. And, you know, I'm somebody who deeply believes in diversity. It's been really moving, um, you know, Catherine Lehman, Kelly Evans, who's our legal advisor and our deputy legal advisor, both African-American women. Uh, Justice Marty Jenkins is now our judicial appointments advisor. Anthony Williams, an African-American man, who's our legal secretary. Being there with them, Daniel Zengali, being them with there with all of these people, it's been really powerful. So in some sense, we marked it by, you know, quoting Martin Luther King to one another. At one point, Daniel Zengali, who's very religious, um, you know, said a prayer um, it's been a really kind of a moment where it's been somber, but it's been a really supportive network of people.
0: We're getting short on time. Um, I want to ask you just like one question about 2020. We were debating yeah. whether or not to ask <laughs> about that. Have you, have you endorsed anybody, first of all?
2: I have not personally. The governor has the endorsed governors endorse Kamala, Kamala Harris. Harris. Oh, How do you, like,
0: what, what kind of person do you think the Democrats need to win in 2020?
2: You know, I think that, first of all, I think that it's great so many people are in the race. Um, you know, I think that we need to have people having feeling like there's some, but there's an alternative to Trump, and that the vision that we believe so so much here in California, our values of inclusiveness and progressivity, are something that we can, you know, go forward on. Um, you know, I also went through a race where you know, gender bias is a real live issue in our country, racial bias is a real live issue in our country, um, the Russians attacking us was a real live problem that we had in our campaign. I do not think that we have grappled with all of those things, and so I worry about them. And I hope we will.
0: So, does that mean you think maybe it would be safer bet to nominate a man?
2: No, I think we got to go with a woman. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to be that person who thinks that the safer bet is with a man. I want to believe that a Kamala Harris, that an Elizabeth Warren, that an Amy Klobuchar can be the president of the United States. And so I hope to be able to support the women candidates.
3: All right, one fun question. We hear you're a runner, hiker. Yeah,
2: well, I used to. What do, you do, more than for I do fun? I hike. I love hiking. In fact, I'm going to admit it. I, I was. I, I went for a hike right before this because I just <laughs> oh, in good. San Francisco. Where'd you go? I went up my in Oakland Hills. I oh, stopped okay. at my house and went for a hike. Oh, good for you. That must be rare these days. It is rare, so I (laughs) thought I'd take an opportunity after that long week to just take a break for myself.
0: Well, Anna Leary, thank you so much for coming in. We could have talked for another half hour, I'm sure, very easily, but uh, thank you. We really appreciate it. Thank
2: you both so much.
0: That does it for this edition of Political Breakdown. It's a production of KQED Public Radio. You can subscribe to our Political Breakdown newsletter, by the way. It gets delivered every Tuesday. You get all of our personality marisa do we have personality <laughs> a
3: little bit and,
0: and analysis i know we have that uh, without having to hear our voices
3: <laughs> you can subscribe at K- I think you wrote that kqd.org slash newsletters for today our producers guy Marzorati. our engineers are katie McMurrin and seal muller vinnie tongs our managing editor ethan Lindsay is our executive editor holly kernan's our chief content officer a lot of people
0: work here jesus
3: i'm marisa lagos you can find me on twitter i'm at m lagos and
0: i'm scott schaefer you can follow me on twitter i'm ready wait for it at scott schaefer
3: no, no, no second. See.
0: <laughs> See you
3: guys next time. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm
2: Sasha Koka, host of The California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world.
1: I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California.